Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. The uh, very first home that my wife Betty and I bought was up in a little town called Warrenton, Oregon. It's right on the northwest corner of the state, right at the mouth of the Columbia River, population 2,500. And that's where we bought our first home. And because it was kind of remote from uh, some larger cities, our TV reception, well, let me put it this way. They didn't have dish satellites in those days, and we couldn't afford cable. So what we had was we had this little 17-inch black-and-white television that we had kind of inherited. Betty had brought from when she was living at home. And uh, the rabbit ears on it, remember rabbit ears? They were broken, okay? So what we had to do was I, I got a piece of speaker wire, you know, a long length of speaker wire, and I kind of attached it to where the antenna was supposed to go, and I ran it out the sliding glass door, and, and I would stand, you know, holding wire like this and back and up and high and low and string it out. Wherever. How's it now? How's it now? Can you see anything now? And on the best day, we could get one and a half stations. <laughs> I'd say two, but the second station wasn't clear enough that you could really tell what was going on. It was just a lot of static, but you could hear the voices, okay? We had one station that we could get in from Seattle. That was it. You know, that was like the furthest thing you could get from high-definition television, okay? It wasn't even low-definition. It would be uh, sub-definition, I guess you'd call it, you know? Um, We're doing this whole series called Life in High Definition. And it's about life with greater clarity and greater focus and greater understanding. And, uh, and a lot of, a lot of um, advances have been made in the broadcast industry lately. And, uh, you know, now stations broadcast in regular definition and high definition and, you know, cable and satellite dishes and all that stuff. But if you were to take that same TV to that same home with that same makeshift rabbit ears antenna, you would get the same, very same reception that I got 25 years ago. Because even though the broadcasting is much improved... The reception for that little TV never got any better. And when we talk about life in high definition, life as God designed it to be in all these different aspects of our life, God is beaming to us high definition living. And it's like we're still playing around with rabbit ears, you know, trying to shift it away, figuring it out, how we're going to make this work on our own. And that's simply not what God designed for us. He designed for us to live life with greater clarity, with greater understanding, with greater focus. And I think one area that is of utmost importance is in this area of our personal relationships. And I think if we don't get anything else right in our life on this earth, this is the one thing we better excel at. This is the one thing we've got to pay closest attention to. Because it's at the heart of God's command. Greatest command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's one command. Not two separate. It's one command. Love God and love other people. And if there's anything that most exemplifies or most clarifies our own relationship with God, it's our relationship with other people. And probably one of the best indicators that you can have of your walk of faith is how am I doing in my relationships with people? Paul wrote about it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. 
What we are is plain to God and I hope is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride on what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us all, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, our relationship with God is completely different because of Christ. And because of the difference of our relationship with God, he says, we can't look at other people the same way that we always did. In fact, it's an incredible statement in verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He says, we just can't do it anymore. We don't have the luxury of making judgments about people the way we always have in the past. We are called to something different. Because of what Christ has done for us, we're called now to live differently with others. What an amazing statement that you or I could be able to say, from now on, I don't look at people from a human point of view. I don't look at people the way I used to look at them. How do you get that kind of perspective? How do you develop those kinds of relationships? How do you begin to experience personal relationships with people the way God intended them to be? Well, he gives us some clues here. He says the first thing is that it starts with authenticity. It's a risk, but you need to take the risk of authenticity. It's the first requirement in any relationship. That's what he says. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. In other words, no masks, no pretense, no faking it. Or as Popeye used to say, I am what I am. <laughs> he says that's an absolute requirement. If you're going to have the kind of relationships that God desires for your life, if you're going to be able to love people the way God intends for you to love them, it starts with an attitude of your own heart. It's taking a risk of authenticity because you and I will only be loved to the degree that we are truly known. And we will only be known to the degree that we're willing to make ourselves real and authentic in front of people. Problem is, we're really good at deception. We learn at a very early age how to cover up our flaws, how to make up for our weaknesses and how to keep things hidden from people so they don't see who we really are. And we're so good at it we are so good at it, we learn to, to even deceive ourselves. There is so much about ourselves that we can't see in ourselves. And if you don't think that is true, just watch one episode of The Trials for American Idol. 
honestly, who told these people they could sing? And I watch it sometimes, and you know, I, I, it's, it's been pretty brutal. I, I've kind of given up on the whole thing. But I watch sometimes, like, these people, are, they know how bad they are. They just want to be on TV. And I look at it and I think, no, they really think they can sing. They have no clue, no self-awareness whatsoever. And then it makes me think, so what is it about myself that I can't see that is so obvious to everybody else? Don't answer that. <laughs> I can't handle it right now. <laughs> Living an authentic life starts with God. He's the one person, the one safe place you can really be open and honest. And you find that throughout Scripture. In fact, David, in Psalm 139, wrote these words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. In essence, David was saying, I know I'm good at hiding stuff from myself. So Lord, in front of you, search me out. Show me that stuff that I don't see. Point out to me the stuff that needs changing and lead me. Guide me in this new life. Confession is an incredibly powerful thing. Because when you begin to be honest with God, you begin to be honest with yourself in front of God, you begin to realize, you know, I'm just as flawed as the next guy. And that's the beginning of deeper relationships. The thing is, it's easier to be honest with God than it is with other people. You notice that? A couple of weeks ago, I, I shared uh, one of my real struggles with, particularly with pride, and this idea of I've always got to be right. You know, I've always got to have the right answer. And, and I shared a story a couple of weeks ago about um, our, our trip to Uganda, and we were sitting, we had a layover in Amsterdam, we're in the airport, and, and the turbofans on the jet planes are kind of spinning, and one of the people in the group, Cheryl, said, oh, it must be really windy out there, look at those fans spin. And I said, that's not why they're spinning. Because I know all the answers, you know. And so we had a whole argument about that, you know. And, and, and I had to admit, you know, what is it inside of me that always has to be right? And you know what? Not one person came up to me after the service and said, you're not really like that. <laughs> None of you. No one of you come up to me and said, oh, no, you're not really like that. It was like everybody said, yeah, we know that about you, Ken. And even worse, <laughs> and even worse than that now, it's like the whole pastoral staff is calling me on this stuff now. <laughs> no lie. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, there was something that said, oh, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And they said, okay, is this a turbofan story or do you really know? <laughs> it's risky stuff to be authentic. Because <laughs> now you can't hide anymore, you know. Everybody knows this about me. I've admitted it. It's risky stuff. But if you're going to have honest, deep relationships, it's absolutely a requirement. Now, let me give you a word of caution on all of that, by the way. There's such a thing as progressive and appropriate disclosure. You don't go down the street to a stranger and say, let me tell you my deepest, darkest sin, okay? That's not where you go. You build it in relationships. 
as you get closer, take the risk of revealing. Earlier on in this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul actually makes reference to an event in the Old Testament. A story you might be familiar with. When Moses went up to the mountain to receive from God the law. And he met with God almost face to face on the mountain. And it says that when he came down from the mountain, his face was so radiant, just so glowing and so overpowering because of his, his, his being in God's presence. It says that he was, it was so radiant that the people couldn't even look at him. It was just like, whoa, that's just too bright. So he had to wear a veil over his face so that the people could even relate to him. Little sound effects there. I'm not sure what that was. That was the radiance glowing. And yet, he says, the rest of the story that you don't find out until the New Testament is, that after a while, that, that radiance faded away. After a while, it just kind of, he was back to regular old Moses. Paul says he kept the veil on long after that radiance faded away. I said, boy, isn't that human nature? Boy, if somebody sees who I really am, will they still like me? I mean, I, I, I'm this great leader of God. And, and the radiance proves it. I've been with God. If people see that the, the radiance has faded, are they still going to believe in me? Are they still going to follow me? Would they still trust me? Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.16, But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, freedom. Freedom is also there. Our faces are no longer covered with a veil. In Christ, we have the freedom to be honest and authentic. I'm going to ask you this morning, how are you doing in this authenticity thing? Just on your paper there, on a scale of one to five. One being, no, I keep things pretty close to the vest. I don't want anybody to know what the real me looks like. To five, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at being open and honest and authentic. Now, if you're one, you can cover up your paper while you mark it, and nobody will see that. But let me just ask you, just take a quick moment, just a self-evaluation. How are you doing in that authenticity thing? He says it's important. And then as you begin to become authentic, he said, make Christ's love your ambition. Verse 14, Christ's love, he says, compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. He said, there's this overarching motivation for the rest of my life now, and it's the love of Christ. It's compelling. It's constraining. The word actually has to do with, with a ship being in a very, very narrow channel where it can't turn around. It can only go one direction. Or, or a cattle chute. Where, where the cattle come through one at a time to be counted, and they're squeezed down, and there's no backing up, there's no going any other direction except the direction that you're constrained to go. He says that's what Christ's love does. It's in fact the very same word that was used to describe Jesus when he was pressed in by all of the crowds. And, and he just, he could only go where they made the opening for him because so many people pressed in around him. And he says that's what Christ's love does for us. It is so compelling, it is so constraining, there's no other direction we can move now. We can only move forward into His love. And it's so constrained in our lives that it's the only thing that holds our life together. He says, we don't have a choice in this anymore. There's no option to this love stuff. It's at the heart of what God is doing in our lives. 
He says, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's how compelling it is. Make it your driving ambition to grow in this love thing. It is the choice that you make to engage in life with other people. And make no mistake, that's how it happens. That the only way that you learn love is by loving. You don't learn it from a book. Although God's Word certainly gives us a lot of instruction and a lot of example of what that love looks like. But you don't learn it by just reading it in the Bible. And you don't learn it from a lecture. No matter how many times we might preach around here about love. You don't learn it from a lecture. You don't learn it just from a book. It's not something that can be learned just cognitively. The only way you learn love is by starting to love. By acting in love to the people around you. It's the only way you learn this stuff. So you make it your goal and your ambition and you look for ways to be more loving. You choose to engage in life with other people. You get connected instead of sitting off in your own little island. And one of the ways that we encourage people to do that around here, and we have done it from the very beginning, is in our small groups. And it's our goal that everybody who calls Northgate their church home and their church family would somehow be connected into a small group. Because that's where you learn how to love. You don't learn how to love by by being a face in a crowd that walks in and walks out and never has to interact with anybody. You learn it in a smaller group of 10, 12, 14 people where you don't get to hide. And you're kind of forced to love. We encourage people. Get it plugged into a small group. In fact, this morning I've asked Shelly Ferris. She's a member of my small group. And uh, she's been learning a lot in this area. And and she's very, very nervous. Um, But she did a wonderful job in the first service. I'm going to ask Shelly if she would come and share her story a little bit. And if you would open up your hearts and listen to her. Welcome her, please, if you would. feel any easier so far. There was a lot less people at the first service. Still can't hear me, can you? Yeah? Okay, good. Six years ago, my one and only daughter moved to Georgia to attend college, and even though she didn't know anyone there, I wasn't, I wasn't too worried because she's a very social lady. She's unlike me. <laughs> She'd probably have no problem standing up here. One of the first things she did when she moved there was to find a church. And she's now a member of St. James Methodist Church in Athens, Georgia. And she's very involved in her church. And she's involved in her community. And God has blessed her with a wonderful life. And I'm very happy for her. Last December, I flew to Georgia to watch her graduate. And I know December's an odd time of year to graduate. But since it was Christmas time, the day after her graduation, her church had a Christmas potluck. So we attended the potluck, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with the love and admiration that was showered on my daughter. People literally flocked around her as if drawn to a magnet, and um, they came up to me and told me what a wonderful person, what a wonderful person I'd raised, and how happy they were to have her as part of their family, and. Not just in the church, but she has dinner with these people, and she babysits for these people, and she's very, very connected there. And she's very filled with God's love. She is um, 
the person who is always checking the church bulletin board to see who's in need and sending out greeting cards for any and all occasions. She is cooking dinner for the family who just brought home their newborn. She's dog-sitting for the couple who needed to get away for the weekend. She's just, she's filled with God's love. My life is very different from hers. Not that I'm not filled with God's love, because I am, I know I am, but I'm not social. I spend a lot of time alone, and partly because I'm just one of those people that requires a lot of alone time to rejuvenate, but partly because it's really easy. Being alone requires zero effort. You never have to worry about um, hurting someone's feelings or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or embarrassing yourself or offending someone. Um, For me, being around people requires a lot of energy because I'm very conscious of how I'm behaving and how I'm treating them. And and I get really stressed out if my life gets really social and I don't have any alone time to rejuvenate. So here I was, kicking back on Easy Street, alone in my house, thinking that life was pretty good. But God has other plans for me. Um, He doesn't want me to be alone. He wants me to be out there loving other people. So as I watched my daughter at the potluck, reaping the the rewards of all of these loving Christian relationships, I made a commitment that when I got home to California, I would find a church where I could grow spiritually and strengthen my relationship with God, and I would build relationships through church fellowship. So New Year's Day 2006, I walked into Northgate Christian Fellowship for the first time. And I'd been to a lot of churches before, but I was always the person who snuck in, sat in the back row right at the beginning of the service and snuck out before anybody could start up a conversation with me. I didn't really want to be that involved. And uh, so, but still, when Pastor Ken said, you know, if this is your first time here at Northgate, you know, we'd love to get to know you better, you know, just fill out that section in your bulletin and put it in the offering box in the back and I thought yeah I don't know maybe I'm just going to go on back to easy street you know I'm not giving you my name and address you know (laughs) but I stuck around you know to hear the sermon and see if maybe this is a church where you know maybe I'd come back sit in the back row six or seven more times and then think about talking to somebody but they didn't have their regular program that day Um, Instead, he invited anyone who wanted to give their testimony about their experiences over the past year, because it was New Year's Day, to come on up and share. And so I sat there for a whole hour and I listened to testimony after testimony after testimony of what a loving church this is, what a good church family to become involved with we have at Northgate. And... I was overwhelmed. I almost cried. I thought, wow, two weeks ago I asked, and God's answering my prayer. I felt his presence there with me. He could have been sitting in the chair right next to me, and I thought, this is where he wants me to be. This is where he wants me to belong. So in February, I joined a small group, and I have to tell you that small groups were created so that you could experience spiritual rebirth to the full extent. I was welcomed into an 
an atmosphere of unconditional love and acceptance. There was absolutely no judgment there by a group of people who have taught me to see people in a new light um, through God's eyes. So I sold my house on Easy Street. (laughs) And I moved to Discovery Way. And I have to tell you, this is what I discovered. They should have named this street, It's a Hard Road. (laughs) It is my truest desire to walk through life with God's love as my only motive. No anger, no judgment, no fear. Um, But blocking out negative emotions is very difficult. It requires constant conscious effort and lots of prayers. When Pastor Ken asked me to stand up here and speak today, my first instinct was to run back to Easy Street and hide. Maybe I'll never even go to that church again. They won't miss me. (laughs) Because I'd rather be on my couch right now hiding from y'all than standing up in front of you. (laughs) I thought, why is is he asking me to do this? Is he crazy? He knows, because he's in my small group. He knows how hard it is for me to be around people. And um, I know that I've made a lot of progress over the last year, but I very much feel like I'm still in the beginning stages of growth. And I don't feel like I'm at a point where I have a triumphant story to share with you. But I was reminded that first I'd already sold my house on Easy Street, and I couldn't go running back there, and I'd made a commitment to God. And lastly, I thought that maybe there's someone else out there who can relate to my story, and hearing it might help them. So thank you for listening. Lest you think that being part of a small group is easy (laughs) or that you're going to walk in and all these people are going to be perfect and loving and never have any problems and you know hey it's people there's a bunch of oddballs (laughs) and if you can't find any might be you the truth is we're all different I mean look at what Jesus did look we talked about this a couple weeks ago He purposely chose 12 people that he brought alongside to do life together. He didn't just lecture them. They lived and did life together. And they ate together and they walked together and they talked together. And if you think Jesus had the perfect small group, listen, do you ever look at the makeup of that group? There were two guys named James and John. You know what their nickname was? Sons of Thunder. How'd you like to have those guys in your small group? (laughs) Ah, there they go, the Sons of Thunder again. Yeah, And then you got Peter, impetuous Peter. He's the guy that always has the right answer, always speaking to that, always talking, never letting anybody else have a chance to say anything. And you got Thomas, who was filled with doubt and not sure about this whole deal anyway. And you got a guy named Simon the Zealot. You know who the Zealots were? They were like the hardcore guys, overthrow the Roman government, blah, 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 you know. Institute God's kingdom here in Israel back the way it's supposed to be. That was the zealots. You know who else was in the small group? Matthew, the tax collector. 
the representative of the Roman government. <laughs> zealots hated tax collectors and tax collectors hated zealots. And Jesus said, I want you and I want you in my group. Because it's in those connections that we learn how to love. So let me ask you, on a scale of one to five in this category, how are you doing when it comes to getting out and connecting with other people? How engaging are you becoming with those around you? Third thing he talks about is looking to bring out the best, God's best specifically, in other people. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. He said, in Christ, everybody, anybody can get a new start. Anybody and everybody. There's, and it's an incredibly powerful tool. He calls it reconciliation. Forgiveness. It is the tool that God has given his people to bring out the best in other people. Being forgiving, letting go of past hurts, not carrying resentments. We, however, are not so fast at that. We nurse grudges. We kind of carry them on. And I love it when somebody says to me, I'm not the kind of person that holds a grudge, but... <laughs> okay, where's the rest of that sentence going? <laughs> or, or, or we pigeonhole people and we classify them by, by their dress by their politics, by their manner of speech, by their behavior? Have you ever said, oh, that's just so-and-so. That's just the way they are. No. In Christ, everyone gets a fresh start. Everyone gets forgiveness. And I wonder, I wonder what the church would look like if we could learn to see people the way Jesus sees them. Ahead of time. You know, we're much better later on after they're making progress. But Jesus saw it in people beforehand. And I wonder what would happen if his people, if his church began looking through his eyes and seeing in people what he already sees in them, even though it's not there yet. John Ortberg in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Him writes about this. It says, Dale Galloway tells the story of a young man named Teddy Stollard. He was not the kind of kid that got invited to parties. He slouched in his chair, looked bored most of the time, and only spoke when called upon, and then only in monosyllables. He never dressed right. He had smelly clothes. He's rather an unattractive boy. Whenever his teacher would mark Teddy's papers, she got a certain perverse pleasure out of marking all the wrong answers. She would put the F at the top with just a little flair. She might have known better because his history, history was on record. First grade. Teddy is a good boy and shows promise, but he has a poor home life. Second grade. Teddy is quiet and withdrawn. His mother is terminally ill. Third grade. Teddy is falling behind. His mother died this year and his father is uninvolved. Fourth grade. Teddy is hopelessly backward. His father has moved away. Teddy's living with an aunt. He is a very troubled boy. Christmas came. 
and all the children brought presents to school. They were carefully wrapped except for Teddy's, which was packaged in brown paper and held together with tape and marked for Miss Thompson from Teddy. The teacher would open the gifts one by one for the class to admire. When she opened Teddy's, it was a rhinestone bracelet with most of the stones missing and a bottle of perfume that was mostly gone. The other children started to laugh, but Miss Thompson caught herself. Snapping on the bracelet, she said, Isn't it lovely, class? And doesn't the perfume smell good? At the end of the class, Teddy approached her shyly. I'm glad you liked my gifts, Miss Thompson, he whispered. All day long, you smelled like my mother, and her bracelet looked nice on you, too. After he left, Miss Thompson put her head down on her desk and cried. She asked God to forgive her. She prayed that God would help her to see what, she, what he sees when she looks at this motherless boy. When the children came back to school the next day, Miss Thompson was a new teacher. She tutored the children who needed extra help, Teddy most of all. By the end of that year, he had caught up with most of his classmates, and that's actually ahead of some. After that, she didn't hear from him for quite a while. Then one day, she received a note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm graduating from high school. I am second in my class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later came another note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I am graduating first in my class. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know that as of today, I am Theodore J. Stollard, M.D. How about that? I want you to come to sit where my mother would have sat because you're the nearest thing to family that I've had. Love, Teddy. The ability to sign value is one of the rarest and greatest gifts in the world. So value what God values. There's an ancient story about a poor traveler who was amazed at the welcome he received at a monastery. He was served a lavish meal, escorted to their finest room, and given a new set of clothes to replace the rags he arrived in. Before leaving, he, com before leaving, he commented to the abbot about how well he had been treated. Yes, the abbot said, we always treat our guests as if they were angels, just to be on the safe side. Learn to bring out the best. Learn to bring out God's best in other people. Let us consider, Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some is in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. That's how you do it. Encouraging. Seeing people as they can be. So again, the bottom of your paper there on a scale of one to five. How are you doing in that? Are you an encourager? Or do you tend to make snap judgments about people and write them off quickly? See, all this matters because ultimately, Scripture says, we're Christ's representatives. We need to see ourselves as His representatives. Verse 18 says, He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And that is a message that cannot be conveyed by words alone. It simply cannot. In fact, he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. See, the thing with being an ambassador is, it's a 24-7 job. It's not a 9-to-5, punch the clock, punch out, now I'm on my own time. When you are an ambassador of another country, or ambassador of another nation, you are on all the time. Everything you say, everything you do, every action you take, every word that you speak, is somehow representative of the nation that you are an emissary of. 
And he says, we are Christ's ambassadors. Our lives are pictures of the kingdom of heaven on display for the world. That's why it matters. Because ultimately, ultimately, eternity hangs in the balance. And it's an old cliche, but it still remains true. For some people, the only Jesus they will ever see is what they see in your life and in mine. Because a lot of people will never crack the book of a Bible. And a lot of people will never walk through the doors of a church or listen to a message unless something in your life and in my life says, there's something here. See, I really believe that Jesus meant it when he said things like, love your enemies. I think he really, really meant it when he said, bless those who curse you and do not curse them back. I think he was serious when he told us about going the extra mile and forgiving as we have been forgiven. I think he really meant that stuff. And he says, now, it's in your hands. You're my representatives. You are my ambassadors. And in every encounter and in every relationship, my prayer is that it could be said of me and said of us, that the message comes through. The message is that God made Christ who had never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the message. And you're the representative. And it all has to do with the way that we are learning this thing called love. Would you bow your heads with me? This love is risky stuff. It's challenging. It's challenging to make yourself vulnerable. It's challenging to look for and try to bring out the best in somebody else. It's a challenge to be a representative of God's kingdom in this world and a representative of His love to other people. It takes lifelong diligence, constant effort and growth. Scripture tells us it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk to enjoy deep relationships, loving, caring, encouraging relationships in this life and the promise of an eternity that kind of living it's worth it so as we went through these things this morning let me ask you which of these could use some attention in your life I could think of a few in my own authenticity forgiveness looking for God's best in others how might you do just a little bit better job at that through his help? As we close, just make that your prayer. Lord, there's a lot about love I don't understand. There's a lot about it I don't do very well. But I believe it's worth the risk. 
know the payoff is wonderful. And I know ultimately it has to do with eternal things. So Lord, help me by your grace and by your strength to be a little more authentic and real, to take that risky step, to be more forgiving and welcoming, connected with other people, to look for, try to find ways to bring out your best in other people so that your kingdom would be adequately represented That's my prayer this morning. And I ask it in Jesus' name, for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship, located in Benicia, California.